0: Hello, my name is John Smetanka and the name of our program is With Respect. today and with respect is Yesenia Rivera. Yesenia is a PhD candidate in an area that I've been always fascinated about uh, because I, like all the rest of my listeners, have a brain. And I like to know how it works. I've seen it in a jar. I've seen it, how people act with it. But I don't really completely understand it. And I hope that uh, by the time we finish today, we will all know a lot more about our brain. So our guest is Yesenia Rivera, and this is With Respect. Senya, how are you?
1: I'm doing really great. How Good. are you doing today? I
0: am fantastic. I had a great day. Um, the sun, the clouds. It, it was just beautiful. So, but now I want to talk about something uh, which you have a specialty. Now, I could go through and take your resume, all the things that you've done, and that would take about two shows. Um, there are so many things that you've done. I'm just going to leave it at this. You are really interested in studying about the human brain and maybe other brains as well is that right
1: correct how did did you
0: get into it first of all where are you from originally and and uh, uh how did you get to where you're at
1: yeah so uh i'm born and raised in chicago uh illinois but my family and everyone before me is from guatemala and uh i've been interested in the brain since About my sophomore year of high school, my godfather actually uh, passed due to Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And um, I was able to see that journey and his progression. And after that, I really felt uh, empowered and uh, just curious about the brain and how it is that we get to use it and in some cases lose it. As we age and get older, um, and so since then I've been super interested in the brain. Majored in it in college, and am now, as as you mentioned, studying that as as my profession.
0: Where where do you go with this now? I know that I know that everybody has a background, and everybody has a reason for getting into what they're doing. Now you told me. Uh, about your your uh, uh, is it grandfather who had Alzheimer's?
1: My godfather. Godfather, yeah. I'm
0: sorry. And so that gave you a personal motivation. But um, how did you decide to make it your life? Because that's what you're doing now. And and what do you go from here after you get your PhD?
1: Yeah. So in terms of Apart from a personal connection, uh, like you mentioned, everyone has got a brain. And I think that really gets to the individual person. Uh, while there are many other things about our backgrounds and, and you know, I guess like what we feel sentimentally, all of that kind of hubs at the brain and being able to understand it, how people reason through things and make sense of the world around them has always been very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of where to go from here, uh, right now I'm in the academia track. So my options—I uh, think the big, obvious option is to um, become a professor and, you know, inform other people about the brain, other people who are also interested in the brain, but um, I would actually really love to go into science communication. Uh, So just being able to relay all this information to the general public, particularly, I think I would love to be able to work in uh, like a museum and kind of create exhibits and make sure that I'm able to not only relay information, but synthesize that down and make it exciting, make it fun for people. Uh, science was always a very fun subject for me in school and I would love to continue that uh, for everyone, not just for kids in elementary school but for mm-hmm. adults and, and everyone that benefits from learning science.
0: Did you did, were your parents involved in academics or uh, in biology, neuroscience? How did how did uh, uh, how did what was your background like at home? brothers yeah. sisters
1: so um i have one sister and she is very into the arts into theater and everything so not through there and actually um i'm a first generation college student so uh, my mom uh, has always been and still is a housekeeper mm-hmm. in chicago and then um my father worked uh, Bunch of odd jobs um, until he was able to retire due to an injury. Uh-huh. Um, so really, I'm kind of spearheading the science uh, portion of the family, I guess. Well,
0: you're the leader. You're moving things, Aaron. All right, now, what is the brain? I mean, I, or the, the Greeks. I some of the Greeks thought that the uh, the heart was the uh, the where the spirit of human beings lived. And we've developed to the point we think, well, maybe there's there's a case to be made for the brain. Um, What do you think?
1: Yeah, so I actually also agree. I think that the way things have progressed in science, uh, I I strongly believe that the brain is indeed that hub of individuality and personality or, as the Greeks thought, a soul. Um, There's actually a famous scientist that um, because the brain uh, is mirrored through the left and the right hemisphere uh, he believed that the soul lied within the pineal gland which is actually just one structure in the brain there is no um, left and right pineal gland um, he was wrong <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, there that's not true but um, the brain essentially is composed of white matter and gray matter, named as such because of the way that the structure looks. Um, Mm -hmm. Gray matter is more cortical area, so more like surface area of the brain and white matter uh, gets more into the inner portions, deeper portions of the brain. White matter acting as sort of like a highway um, for the brain to communicate with its many areas. Um, and
0: yeah, so you say many, many areas of the brain. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I've heard the word lobes tossed around, and I don't exactly know what that means.
1: Yeah, so, um, you are absolutely correct. The brain is divided into lobes, Um, the main lobes being the frontal lobe, which, as it, the name suggests, lies more. Um, towards the front, more anterior. Um, then there is the parietal lobe, which uh, if we're going from forehead to the back of the head, um, parietal lobe kind of sits like right in the middle um, of uh, of the top of our heads, and that's uh, its own lobe, and then going, down the side of the head is the temporal lobe near um, the temples, as the name suggests, and near around the ear. There is also the occipital lobe, which is uh, at the back of the head, and um, that is named as such because the occipital lobe uh, helps us see, and and or is a uh, kind of the lobe that is in charge of visual cortex and um, just visual processing. Um, And to kind of go through that temporal lobe being um, more near the ears does have some auditory processing, but um, I think people would say that the temporal lobe is more well-known for its language processing, um, particularly the left temporal lobe. Um, That area has been found to... Uh, tend to hold more language centers so uh, there's famously known Broca's area, which is named as such by the scientists that discovered the area um, it's that area is more um, language production and it lies in more uh, inferior frontal temporal, um, Kind of like nestled in in between um, more anterior portions of the temporal lobe, and then there is Wernicke's area as well within the temporal lobe, which is more language comprehension as opposed to production, more understanding the language that we uh, hear, and then um, frontal lobe is thought to be more of uh, executive function and reasoning, critical thinking. And parietal lobe is thought to hold a lot of um, motor control, motor cortex, um, and um, just sensory portions as well.
0: Wow. That's complicated.
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a lot going on. <laughs>
0: there is a lot going on. Now, how does it function? Now, all right, I've heard this um, thing, right brain, left brain. And I think I understand that one is supposed to be the artistic side and the other is sort of the math side. Is that a a good layman's way of describing it or something else?
1: So that is um, very uh, well spread around whether or not that truly uh, is accurate kind of varies person to person. I I don't think I would particularly say that right brain is only creative and left brain is only math. Apart from those areas that I mentioned, Broca's area and Wernicke's area, um, a lot of the brain actually uh, kind of does a little bit of both. Um, we see both creative aspects. Um, so under an fMRI, when participants are asked to be creative or imaginative, we see activation in both hemispheres, the mm. left and the right hemisphere. Um, I think that that, uh, idea of, a uh, right brain being more artistic, uh, has uh, just arised from, uh, word of mouth <laughs> yeah. and, uh, um, I can't say that it is, it is 100% true now.
0: Uh, well, the, <clears throat> the, well, the interesting thing about all, uh, science is that it has progressed, um, from, you know, thousands of years ago, uh, to the present time and, and, uh, whether it's astronomy or biology or geology or whatever the ideas that perhaps we had uh 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 10,000 years ago are really being challenged by uh the work, the work of people like yourself right
1: yes of course yeah
0: so um what is it now I've I've looked at a brain in a bottle and um I was at a science fest in Illinois Uh, Not too long ago, and that's which is where I met you. And Mm -hmm. you had an exhibit which I thought was fascinating. You had a series of jars, clear plastic jars, and it had fluid in it, and inside of it were various kinds of brains. And one was the uh, started off with the um, the human brain, and then it went sort of down in size till finally it got down to the to the uh, the jellyfish Uh, and and you it was a trick you you pull that was a trick because what why is the jellyfish uh, brain so uh, humorous
1: Uh, so the jellyfish brain that we present and we have is or when you look at it kind of just looks like an empty jar and that's because that's that's true. Jellyfish <laughs> don't have brains. So uh, that's a little gag that we carry around yeah. with us
0: there's There's humor, there's surgical humor and legal humor. And now I find out there's uh, museum humor. So yeah. so tell me about how the our brain differs from other animals.
1: Yeah. so from as, as you mentioned, I think one of the most obvious uh, differences is just size. Um, And all of that kind of also boils down to the size of the animal in particular. So a mouse brain, of course, is not going to have the size or it's not going to be the size of a human brain just physically because of body types. Um, But also uh, one of the big things that that we see in more uh, critical thinking or or what we tend to think of as intelligent uh, animals is that. The more intelligent the animal, the more gyrocephalic the brain. And that's just a fancy word to say, uh, the more gyri or like grooves. Um, And and the grooves themselves are sulcus or sulci, but the elevated portions are gyri. And so what we see is that these gyri, kind of like our intestines, they fold the brain and contort it into little grooves, little gyri, and that increases the uh, area of uh, the brain to allow for more neurons, more uh, just more space in general. And so uh, I remember uh, joking with you and, and saying that's where that uh, insult comes from, mm. where people uh, say, like, oh, you're smooth-brained. Well, that is someone telling you, oh, you're not that intelligent. And that comes from that idea of more intelligent species tend to have more gyri and sulci in their brain.
0: Well, I think I'm going to re-examine the comments that have been made about my brain by, <laughs> my, by my friends and enemies. But in the meantime, <clears throat> we're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Yesenia. Uh, Rivera, who is a Ph.D. student at Northwestern University, working on the brain uh, of all things. And <clears throat> we're trying, we're getting a little pricey of, of what it's all about, how it's constructed. And soon we're going to talk about how it functions. Uh, this is John Smetank on With Respect, and we'll be right back. back on with respect with Yesenia um, Rivera a PhD student at Northwestern University with in a background which if I read it it would go on forever it's it's a uh, just it's a fantastic background that she has developed for herself and uh, I'm fascinated to tap it with you so this is John and with respect Yesenia Tell me wh- how it is. I've heard this word, neurons, and I even heard another word, synapse. And I know that there's an interrelationship. What, what are we talking about here?
1: Yeah. So neurons are uh, the cells in the brain, and uh, synapses uh, are the spaces in between neurons. And it is through those synapses that these neurons get to communicate. And um, really, a a neuron is is composed of the cell body and dendrites, which uh, are where most information arrives to the neuron. And then it travels through it through what's called the axon, which is, um, think of it as like a little hallway or like highway within the neuron and then that information then carries out to terminal buttons at the end of a neuron and that's where that information is sent out and so a synapse is kind of from terminal button usually to other dendrite from another neuron and um, it's through that space that the neuron releases neurochemicals that are released from neuron A and then dock onto neuron B and cause either excitatory or inhibitory responses in these neurons.
0: Okay, I got all that. I'm writing it down for my thesis. (laughs) But what is, you know, we think about, let's take the function of memory. I can remember many things from my past. Well, now I have long term memory in the short term, like where did I put my hat? is a little bit more difficult but the concept of memory is something that we all deal with and what is that all about how does the brain if it is the brain how are the neurons if it is the neurons uh produce memory
1: yeah so memory is thought to happen primarily in what an area of the brain called the hippocampus, uh, named as such because uh, in the Latin roots, hippocampus kind of uh, means a seahorse. And uh, the hippocampus indeed does look like a twisty, twirly uh, seahorse, the way that the tails come about. Um, And essentially, this area is responsible for memory formation, so the production of new memories. And what we end up seeing is that uh, memories form in the brain through these synapse connections through these neurons that communicate with each other and start to fire. And the more you recall that memory, bring about that memory, the stronger those connections become because they're being used more often. And However, you mentioned that you could, right, you have memories of when you were a child and, and memories of, you know, like just uh, what we call episodic memories. So memories of events. And um, a lot of those memories are long-term memories or or just from formed from a while ago. And although those memories at one point did form and begin in the hippocampus, more long-term memories are actually stored in cortical areas, which, uh, as I mentioned before, they're, they're more on the surface of the brain. And so what we see is that through these synapse connections and through this reinforcement, which is actually called uh, long-term potentiation, which is just that strengthening of the of the neuron to neuron through the synapse connection, through this long-term potentiation, the memory, if if you could even say that it goes or has a specific place anywhere in the brain, but it gets stored in uh, the cortex. But more recent memories are still in that hippocampal area, um, and then you know there's uh, what we call late long-term potentiation, which really starts to get at those memories like core memories that you can remember from so long ago. Like I have a a memory of the first time that I rode a horse (laughs) Mm -hmm. and uh, that memory is established and and solidified through this late long-term potentiation, which uh, starts to actually get at genetic changes within our bodies that the more and more that this long-term potentiation is exercised and that this um, neuron-to-neuron connection is uh, happening, then we start to see uh, protein synthesis changes, which start to genetically uh, change. And and there are genetic changes that really solidify those memories and those events uh, in our brain.
0: Okay, fine. Now, I've I've acquired a memory because there was an event outside of me, or a thought, and that memory comes in, I mean, that that event comes into my head through, I presume, the five senses. Uh, Eyesight, hearing, um, taste, smell, and... it gets it gets synthesized into something are you telling me that that's the process which is handled by this uh squiggly thing called the hippocampus
1: yeah so um I, there there is a a conglomeration right of all those uh senses of you know visually what you see um or you know maybe you can't remember so much the look of of the memory but there's a smell that really draws you back and you say oh that reminds me of this i don't know my mom's cooking or something like that um all of that uh comes together for us to not only make sense of the present, so while that memory is forming, but then um, as well to be able to bring that together to recall it later on. Um, I think it's interesting you're bringing up senses. Uh, there's a lot of steps that, at so for example, as we are seeing something, that information comes from our eyes and it has its own pathway through the visual pathway to get to the occipital lobe in, in the visual cortex. And then once it reaches there and we're able to say like, Oh, okay, I'm looking at, you know, the color Brown and the wall is white. Then it travels. Um, that information travels through different streams. There's a ventral stream and a dorsal stream, a uh, what? Uh, known as, like, the what pathway versus the how pathway, and um, through there, it kind of, that information separates, then to meet again, um, and kind of all conglomerate together, but certain senses travel through different pathways, and a sense, like, smell, actually, because of our nose and the positioning of where those, uh, those scents come in, the smell uh, sense tends to uh, just go directly into the hippocampus, as opposed to traveling through its own system. It has a more direct route, which is why smell sometimes uh, dominates those memories, and you're able to remember something more vividly through a smell than possibly like trying to think about, you know, what that place looked like or what the, what the, the sounds were. um, smell is very dominating when it comes to remembering.
0: Well, you know, I, d- I once wrote a, a piece for a newspaper, uh, a think piece <clears throat> in which I was taught, I started off with the, uh, experience that I had where I smelled something. Uh, it, w- it turns out it was some sort of a chemical that, um, occurred for the first time in my memory when I was playing baseball uh, in a particular field uh, which was near uh, a chemical processing plant of some sort. So it had this unique smell. And as soon as I smelled that again, 30 years later, popped up into my head, standing on the pitcher's mound in that particular field and and throwing pitches. Um, So that you're you uh, st- strike me as it's really a strong image that 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 smell uh, evoked in my head.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That just very uh just one scent can take you back and bring about that memory.
0: Now, we've talked about how the brain, on a on a minuscule level, that is the neurons. Um, send messages to one another, and they use synapses, that is the gaps or the connectors between the, the neurons. But we didn't really define, um, am I going to run out of my, my, my neurons? How, how many do we have? Um, you know, I, I tre- treasure my, my neurons. I, I don't want to lose them. Uh, but am I going to run out? How many do I have?
1: Yeah, so um, in terms of how many you have, uh, we have more neurons in our brain than there are stars in the sky. Um, In terms of synapses, we have about 10 to the 13 total synapses in the brain. And so if a synapse is composed of two neurons, you can uh, kind of think about it that way. Um, There's just so much. But the, the great thing, you know, about... Uh, neurons and and having them and developing them throughout age or as we age is that just losing some doesn't mean that they're gone forever. Um, There's neurogenesis, which just in the name is is the birth or creation of neurons. And uh, that is something that, you know, our brain is able to do as long as it is healthy, as long as um, it is going on well into you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, just in general, as we age, our uh, there is a, there is a decline in our brain. But most um, normal or healthy aging um, at around maybe ages like 70, 80 is when we start to see a a dip in our cognitive abilities and just memory capacity, or not capacity, but Function. And that is perfectly normal, you know, as long as it's not uh, anything drastic. But then um, we do see that development of certain neuro diseases, uh, such as Alzheimer's or um, even just general cognitive impairment, um, that will then take you from just a general, uh, normal, healthy dip around 80, to a steep decline in memory function uh, however there is also now known to be people known as superagers, um, which are people who are 80 years or above whose cognitive function is pretty pristine it's um when looking at uh So, there was a study done where they took an AI and they fed it uh, images and scans and just uh, brains from a bunch of different people across different lifespans and had the AI learn uh, to identify a 20 year old brain or a 40 year old brain versus like an 80 year old brain. And when they fed this AI images, of super ager brains, the AI actually uh, mistook those brains to be 20 years younger than mm. what they actually were. Um, and these superagers, as as we call them, uh, is is exactly that. So when we look at cognitive uh, decline in aging, while most people at around 80 years old start to see a bit of a dip, superagers kind of plateau. And instead of dipping down as normal aging does, they remain up there and are still able to very well uh, hold conversations and remember very specific things from a long time ago. And um, they're, as the name suggests, just aging super- superbly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, before we go any further, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, uh, I'm gonna talk about that healthy brain and how we can maintain healthy brains, and maybe I can turn myself into a superager. I love that. I would love that <laughs> uh, effect in my my uh, between my ears. Uh, this is John Smetaner, and with respect, and we're talking to Yesenia Pardon me, Yesenia Rivera, who is a PhD student studying the development and enhancement. Of our brains and where it fits in biologically, and uh, how it is going to, we're going to talk later about how it integrates into our conscious and emotional life. Uh, this is John Smutanka, we're on With Respect, and we will be right back. with Yesenia Rivera. Yesenia is a PhD student at Northwestern University in uh, Evanston, Illinois and is her specialty is the brain which all of us have. And we now are to find out how can we keep it healthy and functioning. This is John Smtanka. So, Yesenia tell me about more about this brain. All right, let me let me start off with this. My mother upon which I uh relied before on for eternal wisdom and probably still come up with momisms that guide my life. My daughter hates it because she have she is now repeating some of those things that uh, I passed on to her from my mother. One of the <laughs> phrases that she my mother used to say is the brain is a muscle you've got to exercise it and i thought yeah 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 right i mean i i go out and i play baseball i play football i play bi- basketball i exercise how do i how do i st- strengthen that brain and i i guess you're going to tell me
1: yeah so um your mother was absolutely correct uh the brain is indeed a muscle and we need to Exercise that muscle just as we exercise the other muscles in our body. Um, and so, one of the the ways that we find that you could get your your brain workout in is um, through doing like mind puzzles and brain teasers. So, crosswords, uh, Sudoku, word search, um, just in general, um, learning, continuing to learn. Um, all of that is Helpful and beneficial, and just keeps your brain active. Uh, but we also find that there are uh, some other things, uh, possibly a little bit more entertaining, um, <laughs> for those that are like, oh, well, I don't, I don't want to sit down and do a crossword every day or something. Um, there's actually a group at UIC uh, in Chicago that is also collaborating with uh, Rush University and Rush Hospital, and what they have found is that dancing is actually amazing for just uh, mind and cognitive preservation. And there's something about that connection of uh, putting timed bodily movements to uh, music tempo and being able to find those uh, signatures in the music and uh, know, uh, like, have, like, memorized dance is not so much choreography but like the idea of a waltz a waltz is a one two three four versus a salsa Uh, a salsa which is uh more of a one through eight measure kind of step and uh, being able to identify oh this song is a salsa song and these are the moves that i do to the uh one two three five six seven Uh, that is fantastic for preserving um, just brain health in general. Um, But also uh, exercise. Exercise is fantastic. Um, Not just, you know, for your body and cardio and your heart pumping, but um, exercise can actually increase neurogenesis. So that idea of, of, creating new cells and and replenishing from the ones that just naturally die off. Um, Exercise really helps uh, bring about those new neurons and uh, these new neurons also aid in what's called neuroplasticity, which is um, where if some areas of your brain start lacking or there's maybe more cell death in one area, another area will kind of pick up the slack and start to take over. And so the more neurogenesis you have in creation of new neurons, the more likely that you are able to be neuroplastic and to just rewire your neurons to continue that function. Um, Some studies tend to prefer weight training over just basic cardio, but that's actually still up for debate a little bit. Overall, I think just any and all exercise, uh, keep it consistent. That is fantastic for um, for brain health.
0: Now I tell you what: as soon as you told me that uh, at the at science fest, I immediately started lifting weights. Oh, great! <laughs> and I thought, I thought this is boring. I mean, I swim. That's my main exercise. And I thought, I all right, I love swimming. And lifting weights is uh, challenging. So I make a choice. Today I went swimming. Um, I probably will force myself at some, because I talked to you, uh, to try weightlifting uh, (laughs) on a more serious basis. But tell me, reinforce me, that swimming is maybe just as effective as the weightlifting.
1: (laughs) You know, I I would say that, you you're doing great. You're doing fantastic. Um, if you can throw in some weightlifting, then, uh, I would suggest you, you do so, but swimming will help you preserve just as well. I think.
0: All right. Now here's the one that I see so many people doing walking. Does that help?
1: So, uh, I can't, you know, give a, a, a clear cut verdict, but, um, any kind of physical activity seems to be doing the trick. And right, uh, everyone is at different levels, especially as we age. There are certain things that our bodies just cannot do anymore. Um, so if if walking is what you can do, then by all means continue doing it. Um, any and all physical activity will get you that same result, as long as you know you're you're. Uh, it's a consistent walking not just like, oh, I you know I walked yesterday, I don't have to walk for the next two weeks. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: you <laughs> got just, me there. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, there's one more thing that I've thought about, and I, and I want to see if uh, you could help me on this, because <clears throat> I consider uh, eating really a p- big part of my life. I like the taste of food, I like the smell of food, And, um, does that help or hurt my brain?
1: Yeah. So from, as far as I know, there is no direct diet that is, you know, the optimal, um, like brain preservation kind of diet. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'm going to kind of sound like your regular dietitian, but, uh, moderation. Right, a little bit of everything. If you like eating, I love eating. Um, and most things with butter taste so much better. Um,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there's there's also um, just a general limit. You know, the more the more fatty foods that you consume, um, the more that that will collect in our bodies and and can eventually lead to clots and those clots are not always guaranteed to be like in an arm or, you know, in your heart. Sometimes that can just lead to clots in the brain as well, which can then that, that leads to a stroke and therefore, you know, can affect your brain health that way. Um, what I I do uh, think about sometimes though, when it comes to food is, you know, how, the farms that we are receiving this food from and where, how our food is being treated. So um, something that we do see that is harmful for our brains is pesticides and, and certain herbicides. Um, and depending on how much these pesticides are being used and to what extent, uh, that can then in turn affect us because we're eating those crops. And, and that's what was being sold at our grocery stores. And too much of of that then leads to um, degeneration and just in general is very poor for brain health.
0: There's one of the things we haven't talked about. <clears throat> that is walking on the beach, I hear the waves. I smell the 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 uh, the, the water, I I um, feel the uh, sand under my toes, and it really makes me feel good. To what extent do experiences like that that I that really make me feel good? Does that have any effect on the brain itself?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, I can't say directly whether or not um it has an effect on the brain what i do know though is that experiences that make us feel good um release chemicals such as dopamine or you know depending on what that activity is sometimes like uh oxytocin as well and these are just neurochemicals that our body creates um that Make us feel good and, and help us reinforce uh, those feelings and, and those connections in our brain. So uh, I would say that the more the more you like what you're doing and the experiences that you that you live, the more those uh, chemicals get released in our brain and um, just general. Again, talking about general upkeep. Uh, the more you can produce those chemicals yourself, being self-sufficient in your neurochemicals as opposed to relying on, uh, you know, drugs that that kind of do that for you, um, that overall is just a signal of a, a good, happy, healthy brain.
0: We're going to take another break right now. We're talking to uh, Yesenia Rivera. She is a Ph.D. student in neuro- neurophysics or Neurology or whatever. I can't even put together all the different things that she has done into one term. But she's specializing in the brain, the human brain. We'll be right back. This is John Smetanka on With Respect. Back on with respect with Yesenia uh, Rivera. She's a Ph.D. student in uh, brain science and is at Northwestern University. This is John Smetanker. Now, here's something. You talked about uh, positive experiences as being possible. They raise certain chemicals in your brain which uh, give you pleasure, I, I'm now going to talk about work and activities. So I, I now lean back and I say, Mom, what did you have to tell me about work and hobbies? And here's what she said. A person is blessed if their work is their hobby, and their hobby is their work. And I guess what I took from that is, uh, if you're happy doing what you're doing, whether it is work or it's uh, walking or it's w- whatever it is, that does have a positive effect on your whole life, and I assume, on how your whole physical system works. Uh, would that be you know, good? Because so many people today are much older be- and still working. Uh, in, the, out in the the workforce, they may not be doing the same thing that they did when they were 20, 30, or 40, but some of our older uh, folks are um, taking other jobs, new careers. Now, does that have any effect, do you think, on how our brains function or the rest of our system?
1: Yeah, um, I actually uh, really, really do uh, feel very or not positively, but strongly about this, I think what it all boils down to is stress. Um, And if you're fortunate enough to where your work is your hobby and your hobby is your work, as your mom said, then hopefully, fingers crossed, (laughs) that means that your stress levels around work are not as severe. Um, What we do see is, that increased stress can lead to neuroinflammation. inflammation. It can lead to just general uh, being tense um, in in the body, which then can lead to headaches and uh, being uncomfortable and just having being in a lousy mood. Um, which all of that does indeed take a toll on your brain health and your general outlook on life. Um, with increased stress. Uh, in, in the workplace, also, you know, like you mentioned, multiple jobs and stuff, that may lead to just lack of sleep or poor sleep, uh, not getting adequate sleep. Um, and sleep, as as we find, is amazing, fantastic for brain health. So, uh, getting those eight hours in and kind of a hitting REM sleep, which is um, like the deep sleep. Uh, it's it's the final stage, even though this, the stages kind of go in cycle throughout the night. Uh, but REM sleep is very important. And it, uh, just is what we end up seeing is that the neural activity during REM is... Um, similar to the activity of that we experience throughout the day. And so it appears that the brain is kind of uh, synthesizing and taking in everything that just happened and uh, going over it and making sense of it. Um, There are lots of studies at Northwestern uh, under Dr. Ken Paller, who uh, looks at exactly that, looks at how well uh, can people remember things or, or, hold something in in memory after having a nap or um, after, you know, a good night's sleep. And um, the more you work, odds are the less you sleep or the worse quality sleep you get um, and the more stressed you end up becoming. And it's all just a vicious cycle.
0: I am going to take your advice and I'm going to go in and I'm taking a nap. Uh, Right now, just for how long do I take this nap? I mean, I've heard that this is the the in thing now. Taking naps during the day increases your ability to uh, function well during the afternoon, say. So is that true?
1: Uh, Yeah, that is very true. And, you know, some cultures actually uh, take that to heart. Uh, A lot of uh, Asian cultures actually really promote and support workers taking naps throughout the day. Kind of also, you know, Latin America and in Europe, there's that idea of uh, taking a siesta or uh, having shops close around midday so that people can rest and and have a have a nap. And um, exactly how long? Uh, don't quote me, but I <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's about an hour or so, 40 minutes to an hour to get through a full cycle. Um, and actually there is a there's a lot of evidence that suggests that what to, uh, what cycle you wake up in, whether it's like stage one through four, um, depending on which one of those stages you wake up to affects how groggy you are, how uh, mentally uh, prepared you are post nap. So I think um trying to wake up right at the end of REM at that final stage is your optimal place uh, to wake up. And there are actually some apps now that uh, you have it on your phone, you leave your phone next to your bedside and it will uh, start to monitor your, I'm not entirely well-versed in how the apps work, but monitors your sleep cycles and you kind of give it a time range like oh, I need to wake up, you know, no later than 6.30. And so based off of what time you start going to bed and just the general cycles, sleep cycles that we go through, it will wake you up at the optimal stage so that you feel refreshed and ready for the day and you got the most out of that sleep.
0: This is fascinating. Okay. Now, you've helped me with uh, good habits, <clears throat> um, getting sleep, getting exercise, eating a balanced diet. Um, however, there are some bad things that can happen that we can do to ourselves, or people can do, or life can do to us. You mentioned some of them. Stress can be can be bad. Uh, I happen to be a trial lawyer, so that's stress is sort of my uh, unfortunately, it's my daily companion. But um, what about? Substances from the outside, the ones that come to mind immediately are drugs and alcohol. Does that have an effect on the brain? You now we're talking about physical effect.
1: Yeah, so um, I guess I'll, I'll start off with alcohol. Um, we see the effects of alcohol in the brain, you know, within a couple of drinks. Um, that is something that uh, alcohol is able to pass what's called the blood-brain barrier, which is um, just a, a barrier that our bodies have that kind of protects our brains and make sure that there aren't uh, any bad substances or toxins that can uh, reach our brains and affect our brains. But uh, just the nature of alcohol and the liquid form and everything is able to pass through that and um, through our blood system and everything is able to disorient ourselves, our coordination is off, Um, you know, you can't think straight, you get sleepy, Um, all of that is just, like, short-term effects of alcohol, and then long-term effects of alcohol, uh, you start to see, I guess, in more extreme cases, what's called uh, Korsakoff's syndrome, which uh, is a vitamin K deficiency, and uh, that is just, not just excessive alcohol intake, but poor nutrition going along with it. And so uh, you don't have a proper diet, you're not consuming the right proteins or veggies, and you're kind of just feeding your system alcohol. And that leads to degeneration, it leads to uh, necrosis, which is a cell death, uh, and can just in general be very poor for the brain overall. Um, And then drugs, so um, any kind of, you know, anything made in the lab, I just tend to have a very strong distrust to. um, But also now, at least in Chicago and and a lot more throughout the country, uh, marijuana is becoming more and more common and more and more legalized. Um, And, it you know, everything kind of goes again with that idea of, I guess, moderation. A drink every once in a while or even if you want to partake in um, smoking weed or uh, in- ingesting weed in some way every once in a while uh, there are effects as well short term and then once we start getting into the long term is where you start to see um, at least with marijuana more um, memory deficiencies you can't uh form memories as well or they're not being formed correctly um and you start to also see uh, cell death, and so uh, this ne- necrosis is, is cell death. And so, um, the more excessive you are with these substances, the worse they are on your brain health overall.
0: What about the environment? Now, there's a recent problem that um, America has had, generally, especially the middle, the middle west and and the east coast of. Wildfires producing particulates uh, from Canada coming floating down, and and uh, I periodically would see the uh, the computer programs which had or listen to the, the news on the radio, and they said, uh, oh, you know, unhealthy, unhealthy, and it can affect uh, this uh, this particulate matter from the forest fires up in Alberta can can affect our lungs and our 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 uh, Uh, hearts, but does it also can also affect the brain? I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, uh, you mentioned particulate matter. Um, and I think there's two common, um, PMs or particulate matters that they talk about, which is PM 10 and PM two and a half or 2.5, which, um, is it gets those names by the micrometers of the particles. So PM10 is 10 micrometers or less, and PM2.5 is two and a half micrometers or small or, or yeah or smaller. And so, um, particularly that PM2.5 is uh, small enough to penetrate that blood-brain barrier that I mentioned, and um, oh, something that is very prevalent in Uh, general pollution and forest fires is um, uh, this uh, toxic um, uh, known as dioxin, which is common in, like I said, in these forest fires and not only has reproductive health uh, abnormalities, but can also um, is now being tied to Degeneration. So the two most common degener- uh, degenerative diseases are Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, which are now being more closely tied to these uh, air pollutants and, like I mentioned before, pesticides as well. Um, something that we've seen in the past in our history is um, certain uh, pollutants such as uh, pesticides from Agent Orange, which was uh, a pesticide sprayed during uh, the Vietnam War to deforest the trees. And a lot of people that had uh, exposure to Agent Orange uh, developed Parkinson's disease uh, years down the line from their exposure, but uh, those those effects carried on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the same goes for water contamination as well. Um, there was a case of water contamination, particularly TCE. Um, and this was present at Camp Lejeune, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, That's right. In North Carolina. And um, you know, years down the line, what they ended up seeing was that um people who were based at that camp ended up developing uh, Parkinson's disease, seventy times greater than people that were based at a different camp without that contaminated water. Um, so. Yes,
0: and yeah, I'm I'm sorry, but we have now run out of time.
1: Oh yeah, and I've <laughs> no enjoyed
0: word. this uh, immensely. I've learned a lot, and I thank you very much. And of course, we wish you the best on your future, and and you're going to make a great contribution to the world with your brains and your personality, and uh, and bless you. This is John Smetanka, and with respect, we're on every Sunday and Thursday. And until next time, remember our motto, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.